Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 10, and uh, I'm going to read a little bit larger chunk of Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, and uh, you'll see why that is as we work through the, the text in the sermon, uh, but try to follow Paul's logic as we read this text. First Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 10, and moving in through the beginning of of chapter 2. So chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in these next few moments, I pray that you would protect us from the temptation to point fingers at someone else, to identify deficiencies in somebody else. Help us to be listening for what you have for us, God. What do you have for me today? Holy Spirit, we need your convicting power. We need your revelation of the Father and of the Son so that we can know you, so that we can have a deeper relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer. 
Jesus, you are everything to us. You are our sanctification and our wisdom and our redemption. Without you, we have nothing. And so, Father, I pray that you would, as we walk through this wonderful passage of Scripture, that you would reinforce our identity in Christ and not in something else. Father, we continue to lift up those who go out from our midst to uh, spread the name of Jesus and, and proclaim the glory of the cross throughout the nations. I pray for Pastor Guy as he prepares to go on a series of trips here very soon, that you would ignite his heart with joy for you and prepare him to do a mighty work. Pray for the W family, Lord, please provide for their needs so that they can go and get started in this great project that you are sending them on. Uh, Father, we pray for our missionaries that we send through the International Mission Board, thousands of them throughout the, the world. And uh, Lord, they face obstacles and difficulties that the rest of us can only imagine. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen them in their inner man, help them to know that you love them unconditionally because of what Jesus has done and that you look at them as your precious children and that you are there with them even in the uttermost places of the earth. Father, I pray for us that you would open our ears to hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, when you're not feeling well, diagnosing the disease is much more difficult than merely identifying the symptoms. Have you found that to be true? Uh, waking up and saying, I have a headache, is one thing. But tracing it back to its root cause is another. Now, oftentimes, that's okay because God has built our bodies with these wonderful systems that heal all on their own. Our, our blood clots, and it gives the skin a chance to repair. We don't even have to think about it. White blood cells travel around our bloodstream, and they destroy pathogens. Uh, a lot of the time, we don't even have to do it on purpose. We, our body just works that way because God, in his grace, made it to work that way. But... There are also a lot of times when the gap between identifying a symptom and understanding its cause can create a serious problem. About 15 years ago, I made this mistake. I was experiencing a sore throat and a runny nose, and I had some sinus pressure, and I was coughing and sneezing a lot, and I just assumed that the problem was a viral infection like a common cold, and I did what I've always done. I, I took a decongestant, and I blew my nose a lot, and I tried to ignore it and just pretend like it wasn't there. And after two or three weeks, it didn't go away. Finally, I broke down, went to the doctor, and she told me, this is actually a it's not a viral infection, it's a bacterial infection, and if you don't take antibiotics, you're just gonna, it's just going to keep happening. So she gave me a prescription for a Z-Pack, and within a day or two, I was back on my feet. Of course, I was very fortunate. That was an easy one. It's not always that easy. Years ago, a relative of mine uh, went to the doctor complaining of a stomach ache. For some reason, the doctor was dismissive and sent her home. The symptoms got worse, so she went to the emergency room. The emergency room doctor was dismissive and sent her back home. Finally, the pain became unbearable, and she returned to the emergency room. She was just a child, so her parents demanded further examination. At this point, they learned that her appendix had ruptured days before, and she required emergency surgery. In fact, the infection had gotten so bad that she continued to have all sorts of long-term problems. She's okay now, but it could have been a lot worse, and it would have been much, much easier if they would have diagnosed that appendicitis on the first day. You see, it's one thing to identify a symptom, right? To say, here's a symptom. It's another thing to say, here's the real problem. Here's the real cause. You know what I'm saying? Today, we're going to dive into the first major section of 1 Corinthians, uh, it, it extends from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 4. And if you have a pen, you may even want to just mark that in your Bibles, that this larger section goes all the way from chapter 1, verse 10, to the end of chapter 4. Because what the Apostle Paul is going to do it is sort of like what happens with a patient in a teaching hospital. Here's a patient who has a complaint, 
and it happens to be a complaint that many other patients have that, that these doctors in the teaching hospital are going to see over and over again in the course of their career. So Paul, like a, a master physician, is going to say, okay, let's look at this complaint and spend some time identifying the root cause because you're going to see this, co- this issue repeated over and over and over again. He's he's going to use the occasion of this particular set of symptoms to teach the church at large, including Indian Creek Baptist Church. Remember what Paul is doing. He... Uh, It's a letter written to the church at Corinth, but it's also a letter, as we saw in the beginning uh, verses of chapter 1, written to all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it were just about Corinth, he would have waited until he got to Corinth, which he's going to do in a few months. So he wants to teach all of us some things that we need to know today. And so using the church at Corinth as sort of a test case, an example patient, what we're going to do today is identify three, excuse me, three steps in a sort of spiritual surgery that Paul is going to conduct on the church at Corinth, three sort of main divisions in this text that point us to a profound but all too neglected lesson. Let me just give you the three steps and then we'll go back through them one by one. Step one we'll look at the patient's symptom, the patient's symptom. Next, Paul is going to offer a powerful solution. And then finally, we'll see that this leads him to adopt a plain strategy. Uh, So consider with me in the first place from chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, the patient's symptom. Actually, he comes right out with it in verse 11. He says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Quarreling, fighting, factions, divisions, disunity in the church of God. Excuse me. So let's back up a little bit to understand what Paul's talking about. Remember that Paul and the church in Corinth, they have this long history together, right? Uh, They've been corresponding with one another. The The Corinthian church had actually written a letter to Paul asking him specific questions. And then in addition to that, Paul had actually heard from other people who were part of the church at Corinth about some of the stuff that they weren't willing to write about. The Corinthians wrote the questions that were having to do with like the polite, theological, kind of uh, high-minded questions, and then Paul has to find out from another source, okay, there's actually some really ugly stuff that's going on in the church as well. And one of those ugly realities, Paul finds out from this group he calls Chloe's people, probably people who met uh, for church in Chloe's house. Uh, and, And what they reveal is this ugly truth that the Corinthian church had divided up into factions like it was some sort of reality TV show, you know, Survivor Corinth edition or something like that. They were forming these alliances and sort of fighting with each other. Uh, There were factions within the local church. Uh, There were the Paul people. Thank you. Sorry, I know it's unpleasant to hear me cough, so I appreciate that, Andrew. And you you can all weigh in on the symptoms and stuff later on, okay? I I don't know what it is. I do feel better than I did last week, so thank you for your patience. Anyway, Survivor Corinth edition. Here's the Paul people. Uh, There's the Apollos people. There's the Cephas people. That's... Uh, Cephas is just the Aramaic word that means rock, so that's Peter, rocky. There's the people who follow Peter, and then there's this even, even this group that sort of pulled back from everybody else and said, we're not like all of you, we're the Christ people, and we don't actually listen to all these other guys that you're following. Now, that's nothing like what happens in the church today. We don't have divisions like that, thankfully, right? No, we have that going on today. And as we read the text, you were probably thinking of specific examples. I like John Piper. I follow the pastor who led me to the Lord. I like David Jeremiah. My favorite pastor is Alistair Begg. I like hymns. No, I like modern worship music. I like to think about how the gospel impacts politics. I don't like talking about politics and how... The gospel impacts politics. I'd rather just do evangelism. Hey, I'm a Calvinist. Oh, I wouldn't touch a Calvinist with a 10-foot pole. And my favorite, I'm just a Biblicist. 
I'm above all of these controversies. We have all these niches that we like to carve out for ourselves, and what we find ourselves thinking is that all the other Christians we know are somehow less than because they don't live in that little niche that we've carved out for ourselves. Even right now, I guarantee most of you are thinking of specific examples, and those specific examples are probably about somebody else, not you. And Paul just asks a simple question. Is Christ divided? How many Jesuses are there? So if there's one Jesus and the local church is supposed to be his temple, we saw that last week, set apart for him, his body, then how many parts, how many factions ought the church to have? Isn't it obvious that you've got a major problem? Can't we at least admit that we're experiencing a harmful symptom? Have you ever had somebody tell you that with reference to your own physical health? You're just like, you've got a problem, but you don't see it, and you're just living with it, and someone has to come along and say, you know, that's not normal. Like, your toe is not supposed to look like that. Maybe you should get that checked out. This is what Paul is doing with the Corinthians. Guys, it's not normal for the body of Christ to have these factions, these divisions in it. This is a problem. And and so the symptom is very clear. There is quarreling in the church, but be careful not to stop there because this is what we often do, folks. This is very important. We notice the symptom. We say there's factions and divisions in the church, and I think most Christians understand that that's not supposed to be the way it is. But then we just stop reading right there, and then we come up with the solutions to that problem all on our own. We've got to keep reading, because here are some of the things that we tend to say. We say things like this. Well, the reason we have disunity in the church is because we aren't all aligned with the truth. And if we could all get aligned with the truth, then we wouldn't have divisions. It's the people that don't understand truth who are actually causing the divisions. And I've actually heard that said many times. Okay, the first problem with that is it doesn't work. Uh, and, And if you find somebody who, some of you know what I'm talking about, people who are always saying things like that, well, we just all need to get on the truth, and then we'll all be unified, they're some of the most divisive people you can meet. Uh, it doesn't work. The second reason that that is a problem is because oftentimes the divisions are not about truth and error in the church. You can have two people and they agree on what the truth is, but they do not get along. Think about Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, There were two women who were fighting for some reason, and by the way, this was probably a problem throughout the church in Philippi. If you kind of read into some of the things that he says in the letter, but he finally gets to chapter 4, and he says, he calls these women out by name, and he says, Euodia, Syntyche, you're my true, you know, co-laborers in the Lord, agree, like just get along, it doesn't matter who's right, you just need to get along, so my point is sometimes you need to get past all the pettiness, it's not about somebody getting in line with the truth, and everybody just needs to be unified. I've heard people say, well, the reason we have divisions in the church is because we're so focused on theology, and we need to focus less on theology, and we need to leave our theological differences aside. And there's a, there's a, a grain of truth in that advice. It sounds good, but be careful on this one because what actually ends up happening is that a dominant person like a pastor or a deacon or somebody like that ends up sort of setting the agenda and whatever is important to that person is within bounds to talk about and whatever is important to everybody else is divisive. And so what actually happens is uh, instead of having real unity, there's just tyranny masquerading as unity. I've heard people say, well, we need to make sure that all the parties are represented. Each party needs to kind of have equal representation in the church. You know, we, we do this with music styles. We, the hymn party, we get our two songs, and then the modern song. You don't want me to go there, but I'm going there. And then the, you know, the modern worship music people, they get two songs. Okay, it was, it was fair. It was equal. But the problem is not that we need to have equal representation. The problem is that the divisions exist in the first place. 
Others might say, hey, let's just live and let live. I'll sit over here on this side of the auditorium. You stay over here on that side of the auditorium, and I'll have my circle of influence and my friends, and you have your friends, and our church is big enough where we can kind of just be like ships in the night, passing each other. We don't have to talk to each other. That's the solution. But friends, all of these so-called solutions are just addressing the symptom. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to say, let's dig a little deeper. Let's get a little further down to the root cause. Remember what we said last time. Paul, in this letter, he never tells us, he never reasons like this. He never says, hey, you're doing something wrong. Let's do something differently. Let's do it right. That's not the way he talks. What he says is, you're doing something wrong. Let's take a step back and consider some really important theological ideas that tie back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then let's look at this problem again in light of what we just talked about. And that's what he's going to do here in this passage. He says, here's a problem. Let's look at the gospel. And then we'll look at it again in light of that truth. Now, we're not going to get through all of that today because this goes all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 4. But we're going to get a big chunk Uh, We're going to look at a big chunk of what he says. And so uh, that's what he's going to do. Notice with me not only the patient's symptom, but secondly, a powerful solution. A powerful solution. Look at verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, so what do those verses say the solution is? It's a very simple, powerful cure. And really, this is the central idea of the entire passage. He kind of sums it up in chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what it is. Quarreling Christians need the cross. Quarreling Christians need the cross. In other words... If we can all agree that it's not good enough for the church, that it's not good for the church to have quarreling, that's not good enough. Like, it's not good enough to just identify the symptoms. It's a start, but it's just a symptom. We need to address the real issues, and that's what Paul is going to do in the rest of the chapter. He's going to say quarreling Christians need the cross. You say, you know what, Pastor Jake, that sounds good. I kind of felt like you might say something like that. It's a good Sunday school statement. But what does the cross of Jesus Christ have to do with fighting and disunity and divisions in the church? Like how is it that the cross of Jesus Christ can have any impact on the fact that I can't get along with this other person that sits across the room from me? Well, he's going to get into that. In fact, this focus on the cross, as we'll see, it's not just the solution for quarreling. It's the solution for a lot of things. And and he's going to give us really three relevant realities uh, that pertain to the cross and connect it with the issue of divisions and with many other things. Here's the first reality. Uh, From verses 18 through 25, first of all, we see that the cross contradicts the wisdom of the world. The cross contradicts the wisdom of the world. Uh, Let me explain why this was important in a city like Corinth. Uh, Think about it, folks. This is the most important city in in a 100-plus mile radius. It's a very influential, very powerful city. They had a way of doing things that threatened to infiltrate the the cross-shaped culture of the church. You see, in a place like Corinth... Wealthy people maintain their status through great acts of generosity. It's, it's a different culture from the one in which we live today. People didn't get status by, you know, going on Instagram or by buying a, a special car or something like that, the things that we do. There was a very specific way that you achieved honor and status in a city like Corinth. If you wanted to be an important person, you would pay to have a new building erected or a new street paved, and then you would slap your name on that building or that street, and people would begin to give you the honor and the respect that you desired. Honor was very important to the citizens of Corinth because when those people, when those families moved into the city, they didn't have any honor. This was kind of a new money town. All right, so these are military veterans. These are freed slaves who are just for the first time getting an opportunity to sort of make it in life. And so they're very 
interested in accruing honor for themselves. And it ended up being this whole economic system. And it, it actually was something that applied to the way that they interacted with people that would travel around and speak. So there was this whole uh, sort of market for professional orators, traveling philosophers that plied their trade in important places like Corinth. So what would happen is this important wealthy person wanting to accrue honor for himself, he would identify uh, one of his favorite public speakers who would hold forth out in the public square and he would invest some money in that person, and then in turn, that public speaker was supposed to pay his dues to the patron and sort of say, hey, this guy is a good guy. This is where the Corinthian obsession with speech and eloquence and honor and shame comes in. Did you see that kind of thread, that subtext running through this text? Paul says, I I don't care about eloquent speech. Why does he say that? Because the Corinthians did care about eloquent speech. It was one of the ways that they kind of glued their fabric of society together. You'll notice, I know I'm moving through this quickly, but if you go back to the book of Acts and you read about Paul's time in Corinth, you'll notice that he did not receive financial support from the church in Corinth. And the reason for that is because they expected him to participate in this sort of patron-client system of, of You know, you give me money and I'll say nice things about you. Paul wanted to be free to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he didn't play the game. And so because he didn't play the game, a lot of the important people in the city and the synagogue decided they didn't want anything to do with him. But now the Corinthians are taking that whole system of values. This is the wisdom of the world. Like this is how the world works. And they're taking that system of values and importing it into the way that the church is set up. And they're saying, okay, even though Paul doesn't play this game, we're going to play this game. I am a Paul person. Well, hey, I'm, a, I'm an Apollos person. I'm a patron of Apollos. Hey, I've supported Peter in the past. I follow the teachings of this guy or that guy. Uh, this party spirit is ripped right out of the culture. And what Paul essentially says is that this whole system is a farce. It's a complete mirage. This is what he means in verses 19 through 21. Notice how in verse 19, he's quoting a passage from the Old Testament. What does it say? Look at verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That comes from Isaiah 29. Remember, like we said last week, if we want to understand Paul's letters, we need to start with where? Paul's Bible. So Paul draws this idea from Isaiah 29. What's going on in Isaiah 29? Isaiah, centuries before, is calling out the proud leaders in Jerusalem because of their hypocritical worship. And he says, because they were proud, because they were building their culture on the pride and priorities of men, then even their prophets and their wise men are going to spout foolishness. In other words, this whole system in which Uh, this wealthy person is paying somebody to speak well of him in public, they're not saying anything of substance, and that, that system is actually a result of the judgment of God on that culture. Like, he's saying this is what happens in the city where you're living. Corinth is filled with pride. It's filled with hypocrisy. And whether you're talking about the Jews in the synagogue or the Gentiles gathering in the town square to spout off their so-called wisdom, their pride folks, this is so sobering, is actually leading them to a sort of spiritual blindness, and that blindness is part of God's judgment on that society. So here's what's going on. Why do the Corinthians have disunity in their church? Why do we tend to have disunity in our churches today? I'll tell you why we have disunity in our churches today. It is because we are more impressed with the wisdom and the priorities of man than we are with the glory of God. We want our preachers and our pastors and the books we read and the churches that we belong to to be impressive to a world that is blinded to the truth. This is why we have divisions in the church. This is what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, well, we need to fit our worship into the mold of the wisdom of the world. And this is where the cross comes in. Because the minute you embrace the cross... The minute you really commit to the cross of Jesus Christ, the minute you allow that reality 
to sort of take hold of your heart, your mind, your affections, and grow, then what you're doing is you're essentially saying, all the wisdom of the world makes no sense at all to me. I'm rejecting it completely. See, think about it from the perspective of an ancient person. The cross was not a decoration to them. Nowadays, a cross, you can wear it around your neck uh, as a necklace. You can have cross earrings. You can have crosses all over your wall. Nobody bats an eye. It's just a symbol of Christianity or like I, I follow Jesus. It's a decoration. But to an ancient person, the cross was not a decoration. It was a horror. You heard your child say the word cross or crucified. You would like smack them in the leg. Don't say that. That's not polite to talk about. Crosses lined the roads leading out of any city or village, hung with rotting corpses and miserable wretches begging for death. Think about this in your mind's eye. This is where people lived. They knew what a cross was for. They had seen it. You'd walk past that cross. You'd feel sick. You'd turn your head away in disgust and shame. When... Unpleasant, immoral people wanted to curse an enemy, they would yell, get crucified. Forming the sign of the cross in an ancient time was the cruelest gesture that you could make. Nowadays, we have these gestures, you know, the middle finger, things like that. They're so offensive. Making the sign of the cross was far more offensive than anything that we have today. We've made the cross into a token of popular culture, but... If you lived back then, you wouldn't have any trouble imagining why the wise, why the mighty, why the honored and esteemed, the powerful, might blush at the mention of the cross and laugh in scorn at the idea that someone might worship a crucified Savior. It, it was laughable. It was ridiculous to the culture Gentiles. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. But to those of us who believe, it is the power of God. Do you see how incompatible following a crucified Savior is with embracing the wisdom of the world? Those two things are completely on different pages. They're in completely different books. They're in different libraries, folks. They do not go together. And if you're not a Christian, you need to understand why that is. Why is it that Christians believe that the cross is the power of God? Have you ever wondered that? Here's why. It's the very fact that the cross was an implement of divine curse that makes it so powerful. You see, the problem with us is not that there's wickedness out there in the world. The problem with us is not even fully explained by saying there's wickedness in me. The problem is, folks, that we were made for a reason. We were made to glorify and honor the God of the universe. We were made for that purpose, and we go out every day, and we say, no, I'm going to glorify myself. I'm going to glorify my own name. I'm going to go my own way. And we belong to a people who have built a society that is designed that way. We rebel against our creator, and God is good, and God is just, and he's right, and he doesn't put up with that. And so, folks, our problem is that the divine curse is hanging over our heads and God's judgment is ready to fall. And because God loves the world, he doesn't let it fall on us. He actually sends his own son into the world. And instead of the curse falling on we who deserve it, it falls on Jesus at the cross. This is why we say that the cross is the power of God. Because when Jesus totally took the curse in his own body on the cross, when he totally when he said, it's finished, it's done, the work is complete, it was totally done. And even death couldn't hold him. He was raised from the dead three days later. He walked out of the tomb, and he's alive forevermore. This is the power of God. And if that's true, if the cross is the power of God, then, then everything, folks, that the world says is powerful and impressive and worth pursuing is a lie. 
The cross destroys the wisdom of the world. It contradicts it absolutely. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, when we boast in men, when we say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I have a degree from this university, I have this professional credential, I have this big of a house, I'm boasting in men, what we're saying is, you know what? The cross is actually not the power of God. But if we remember... That, that the cross is the power of God. What we're saying is all that stuff that's important to the world, that it just doesn't matter to me. The cross contradicts the wisdom of the world. Second reality from verses 26 through 29. The cross crucifies human boasting. The cross crucifies human boasting. Paul calls on the Corinthian brothers to sort of look at their own resume to find something to boast about. He says, consider your calling, in, uh, brothers, in, in verse 26. M- most of you here in the church are not practicing your short game in the corner office of a skyscraper in a big city. You're not driving around in the back of a limo. You, you, you have not had your jersey retired in the basketball arena. You don't have any hit singles on the billboard charts. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're just normal people. In fact, some of you are kind of uneducated rubes. If, if the value system of the world, the one that you're allowing to infiltrate your church, is so accurate, then why would God build a church using blockheads like you and me? And the answer to that question is very simple, to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to bring to nothing the things that are, to expose the emptiness of worldly glory, to show that the emperor doesn't have any clothes. All these things that we find impressive, that we think are so great, that we boast in, one day they're going to be rusted and gone. The entire Corinthian culture was built on boasting. In fact, if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians together, you see that word come up again and again and again. They're boasting about this. They're boasting about that. That was what was important to people in antiquity. They would build a bathhouse and slap their name right on the side of the bathhouse. Boast. They would uh, walk into the town square. They would hear somebody speaking, holding forth, and Uh, There's his hat on the ground, and they would throw a couple bucks into his hat, and they would support that guy, and that guy knew what his job was, to take a deep breath and start praising his patron. Alderman so-and-so is such a classy person. Boast by proxy, right? These boasts were like money in the bank to ancient heads of household looking to increase their profile in halls of power. But then someone comes along and refuses to play the game and exposes the whole system and he preaches about a crucified king. Like the most honored person in Paul's life is someone who hung there naked, ashamed, dying. And then all the uneducated misfits and miscreants form a church. And then that church begins to turn heads and get the attention of the world, not because they're so wealthy and impressive, but because they love each other. It deflates the whole balloon. Why does God do this? Because he is so interested in shaming the the boasting of the wise. He wants his own glory. He's jealous for his own glory. It's kind of like the passage that Mark read a few minutes ago in the service. You remember what happened with Gideon? The Israelites gather all their troops, and there's thousands and thousands of men, and they're, they're looking around, and they're thinking, you know what, the Midianites are powerful, but look, I mean, we've got all these soldiers. We can do it. And then God tells Gideon, um, by the way, I don't want you to be able to boast, so I'm going to actually ask you to send most of them home. And now they have just a few thousand, and Gideon's looking around and thinking, well, These guys are the brave ones, at least. And then God says, no, I don't want them getting the credit. I want to get the credit. And so most of them are sent home, and he's left with 300 men. Who gets the credit when 300 men beat tens of thousands? God gets the glory in that situation. Let's remember, friends, 
It's not our smarts. It's not our righteousness. It's not our money. It's not our education. It's not our beauty that brought us into the kingdom of God. You know what we brought to the table? You brought nothing to the table except for one thing, your sin, your need. That's it. We have absolutely no reason to boast in the presence of the Almighty, and we'd better learn that now. It is much better to be humbled today, that glorious pain of being humbled, than to be humiliated on the day of judgment. The minute we remember the cross, we're left without a single boast in man. So take this back to the issue of disunity and divisions in the church. You want to know why we have disunity in the church? Why do we have divisions in the church? It's very simple. It's because of pride. It's because we're boasting in ourselves. It's because we want to get the glory. It's because we love to boast in ourselves because we've forgotten one of the lessons of the cross, that we have no grounds on which to boast. But if I remember, Jesus was crucified. My Lord was hanging on that cross because I deserve the wrath of God. That helps me to remember it's not about something that I'm able to boast in. It's not about my glory. When we allow the cross to shape the culture of the church, when it really sinks in that we are saved through the crucifixion of the Savior, the cross, it it crucifies human boasting. It kills it. First reality, the cross contradicts human wisdom. Second reality, the cross crucifies human boasting. Reality number three, the cross, don't forget, connects us to King Jesus. The cross connects us to King Jesus. This is why people have made it into a, this is why we put it on the wall, okay? I don't want to be unkind to people who have cross decorations. The reason that we do that is because the cross is our banner. The cross is our glory because it connects us to King Jesus. He says in verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So what Paul is doing is he's clearly alluding back to the, the, the prophecy of Jeremiah 23 in which the promise is made that God's king will come and shepherd his people. And, he, and, and Jeremiah tells us he'll deal wisely and he'll, he'll deal righteously. Christ is our wisdom and our righteousness. You want to have real wisdom? You want to have real righteousness? You want to be really sanctified and set apart to God? Do you want to have any hope of redemption? You're not going to have any of those things unless you have Christ. And it's the cross that unites us to him. See, Paul isn't saying that the Corinthians should avoid boasting. It's not that we should avoid boasting. Christians are not people who should walk around with their heads down and just sorry for themselves all the time, moping around, oh, I'm so horrible. That's not where the focus is. He says it's not that you shouldn't boast. It's that when you boast, you need to boast in him and not in yourself. I mean, don't you think, do you see why quarreling Christians need the cross? Because it reminds us that that person that we're quarreling with, that person that we think is so bad, That person that we don't understand, why do they think that way? Why have they reached the conclusions that they've reached? We need to remember that that is still a person who is joined to Christ at the cross. Don't you think that should change the way that we feel toward one another? Don't you think that ought to make a difference in the way that we interact with one another? I'm not fighting someone who is my enemy. I'm fighting someone who is in Christ. I better be careful how I honor that person how I respect that person, no matter who they are. How can I build a whole identity on something else? How can I build a whole identity on something like my favorite teacher or my favorite preacher or on my ethnicity or on my profession or on my economic situation or on my political views or all these other things that we build our identity on when I have been joined to the Son of God? Doesn't that transcend every other thing that's true of you? You, know, you want to know why we have disunity in the church? Paul explains it right here. It's because we're finding our identity in something other than the cross of Jesus Christ. It's because we're building a personality around something other than the fact that I've been joined to him. What, what, is, what is the church known for? Shouldn't it be that we're in Christ? 
Well, that's the church over there. That church, that's where all the white-collar professionals go. That church over there, that's where all the athletic people go. That church over there, that's where all the people go who like hunting and fishing and outdoor stuff. That's the church over there with a cool band. Obviously, we can't control what other people say about our church. But wouldn't it be wonderful if Indian Creek Baptist Church were known not for how we're different from other Christians, but for how close we are to Jesus? What I mean is this, that when people think of us, they quickly stop thinking about us and they start thinking about him. Let me put it this way. I, I hope you don't leave here thinking, Indian Creek, man, that's a great church. I hope you leave here thinking, man, Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is my Savior. I love Jesus Christ. And the, friends, the cross does that. Quarreling Christians need the cross because quarreling arises when we're more impressed with the glory of man than with the glory of the Savior. Quarreling happens when we embrace pride and we boast in ourselves and the cross crucifies any reason for human boasting. Quarreling arises when we find our identity in something other than Christ and the cross kind of comes and destroys that and says, no, who you are is in Christ. You see how what we need to do is go beyond observing the symptom and get to the root cause and there's really one simple, powerful solution. Go back to the cross. Go back to the cross, Jesus Christ crucified. And that leads us to our third step in this spiritual surgery. I mean, it's only logical. Because we've seen the patient's symptom and we've seen the powerful solution, thirdly, we see a purposeful strategy. Paul preaches Christ crucified. In light of everything we've just considered, his statements at the beginning of chapter 2 just make sense. He says, I decided, I purposed in my heart to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What's your ministry strategy, Paul? What do you do? How is it that you go into a city and make Christ known? How do you build these churches? Do you do some kind of gimmick? I mean, what's your strategy? Paul says it's very simple. I just say, get everything out of my mind except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. You say, Paul, isn't that offensive to Jews? Isn't that considered foolish to the Gentiles? Sure. But the minute I begin to wander away from the cross, something happens. I start to get enamored with the wisdom of the world. The minute I wander away from the cross, I start to feel proud in myself. I start to find my identity in something other than Jesus. So I'm going to have a very simple, very purposeful strategy in my ministry. I'm going to preach Christ crucified. That's it. We, we so easily lose sight of the central, simple power of the cross. It always grieves me when I engage with people about their faith, how often professing Christians will talk about how they prayed a prayer when they were young or how they hope that their life shows evidence of being a follower of Christ or how they came forward at the end of the service in response to a sermon or how their relative was a good example to them and that's how they became a Christian, but they don't say anything about the cross. And, and if that's going on, we've really gotten off track, friends. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm saying that Christians, we as Christians, we need to remember to keep our focus where it ought to be. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is it possible that we've taken the cross for granted? That we've become bored with the cross? We read the New Testament, which is all about Christ crucified, and we come away and we think, okay, what's my to-do list? We read the Old Testament, which points us to Christ crucified, and we say, okay, well, who are the examples that I can follow with courage and bravery and things like that? And our focus is off of Jesus Christ crucified come to a worship service, we get upset if we didn't sing the kind of music that we like, but I don't even notice if the preacher said anything about Christ crucified, then we're noticing the wrong things. I know I'm being hard on you music lovers, but we all are music lovers. I'm not trying to single anybody out. I'm that way too. Where is our focus? You know, I don't tend to feel a lot of regret after I preach. Sometimes I feel tired. Sometimes I feel kind of blah, but the, the times that I feel regret are times when I feel like, you know what, 
I wish I would have underscored, underlined, boldface, italic, the cross of Jesus Christ more than I did. Because that's where our focus ought to be. Indian Creek, we need to come back to Christ crucified. When you and your spouse are fighting, I guarantee it will help you to go back to the cross and it will change the way that that argument uh, is oriented. If you're planning to do ministry in the nursery or in children's church or in the youth group or at the Salvation Army or at the Pregnancy Resource Center, I guarantee that meditating on Christ crucified is going to orient you more accurately to what God is calling you to do in that ministry. Not a single thing on our church calendar, not a penny from our bank account should be devoted to anything that we cannot tie back to the cross of Christ because it is everything. It is the hinge pin of history. It is the death of death. It is the thing that killed our sin. It's the thing that broke, broke down the wall of separation between the individuals in the church and made us one family in him. It's the power of God. And I realize there may be some in this room who think, you know what? That's foolish. You know what? That's offensive. First of all, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for being here this morning. And it's completely appropriate to have questions, but let me challenge you to do something. It's normal to have confusion and uncertainty. Let me suggest that the reason the cross doesn't make sense is because the framework through which you are evaluating the claims of Jesus may itself be the house of cards in your life. And what I would encourage you to do is take a step back and instead of doing this, prove it, God, to say this. Show me, God. Show me. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need someone to cut through this confused and tangled mess of guilt and fear and shame and confidence and doubt. Please show me. If it's real, show me, please. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. He'll bring you to a place of understanding. You see, quarreling Christians need the cross and friend, no matter if you're Christian or not, you do too. We all need the cross. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this clear, unmistakable, unshaken reality that Christ paid for all of my sin at the cross. That the wrath of God was completely satisfied at the cross. That the accusations of the enemy toward me have already been nailed to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I don't need to embrace the wisdom of the world. I don't need to find something to brag and boast about in myself. I don't need to build an identity other than Christ alone. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring our minds and our thoughts back to the cross. And I pray that that reality would bleed into our relationships so that we might not be a church with divisions, but a church unified around the foot of the cross. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.